0: I find I'm often when I'm socializing, if I get a text message or I know something else is happening later in the day, my mind goes there and it's thinking about everything that I might be doing next. But now we're uh, we're a different species. We've sort of become this species on the go, always on guard, not knowing what's coming down the drain at a moment's notice. From NCPR, welcome to Northwards. People,
1: ideas, and conversations from and about Northern New York, Vermont, and beyond. I'm Mitch Tyke. Support for the Northwards podcast comes from Joe Steiniger and Mary McDonald, in support of the Adirondack Foundation, building stronger Adirondack communities. Part of the deal with being a card-carrying member of Generation X is that we are the last generation to have actually grown up without the internet. My school did get a computer when I was in fifth grade, and I was one of the lucky people that got to learn the basic computer language. But... I was 25 years old before I got my first email address, and probably 27 when I could first listen to a song being streamed over the Internet in what I have to think was pretty low fidelity. At the time, I would have said if you wanted to read the news, you should go buy a newspaper from the machine on the corner. And if you wanted to listen to music, try the radio or the record store. I am not 27 anymore, in fact, I am exactly double that, and to produce this little introduction, I had to log on to a computer network that is, well, somewhere. And as I'm producing it, I'm live streaming a soccer game being played in Madrid on the second computer monitor on my desk, and I've just asked my smart speaker to tell me the weather forecast. The internet has gone from zero to, I don't know, 80 or 800 in half of my lifetime. It's difficult to imagine giving it up for 20 minutes or an afternoon, unless I've found a really good record store. Aaron Lee Rosenberg gave it up, and for a lot longer than an afternoon. It was a whole year, and not just any year. He didn't use the Internet for all of 2020, when the rest of us were hitting refresh on our browsers like every 18 seconds. And he kept a journal of that year, which has become his new book, called Jacking Out. He lives across the border in Montreal and joined us by Zoom since he is back on the internet now. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm sure this is the first question you get from everyone, Um, but let's go back to the fall of 2019 or maybe even the months before that. Uh, What was happening that led you to plan this year offline?
0: I uh, grew up in a very tech-saturated world. My dad is a techie guy and we always had the latest gadgets and I had my first web page when I was 12. and I'm part of that generation that really embraced everything digital as soon as it was available to me. And uh, then I spent a few years as a high school teacher in Western Canada. And while I was teaching high school, I started to realize that even though I wasn't that much older than my students, like I was maybe 10 or 15 years older than they were, I had a very different relationship with my device than they did. And on the one hand, I started to realize that there was actually a lot of really beautiful, important, meaningful things that these young people were doing with their devices. But I also noticed uh, that a lot of them had a really intense time trying to separate themselves from those devices. And I would be really upfront with my students and ask them, like, do you think it'd be better if you left your phone in your locker? Or do you think it'd be better if we don't have the phones on our desks? And students, I think, were trying to be honest with me, too. And a lot of them shared they thought it'd be more distracting to not have their phone on them. And that sort of confused me in a way that made me want to learn more. And I started realizing that Um, the way that young people relate to their phones, it's so central to a lot of the way they socialize and how they see themselves, that the idea of not having it on them, actually, for some of them is a bigger distraction than having it on them. Um, So for my my pedagogical or educational (laughs) philosophy, I was like, no, I can't just ban cell phones. I've got to try to support students to use them meaningfully and responsibly. And I realized I didn't really know what that looked like. So when I started grad school again, I was very struck by the fact that I had a unique uh, privileged position as a grad student with funding that I could actually, if I wanted to, I could be like, Hey, I'm I'm not going to check my email for the next year. I'm going to try to participate in all the educational expectations that are on me as a grad student, but do it without the internet and see in 2020 what that looks like. Cause of course, when I talk to a lot of people about that, they're like, well, I did all of my grad school without the internet and i'm like yeah but that was in the 70s and it's, <laughs> it's normal um so it was a it was more i think a bit of an experiment to see what would happen and how it would affect my both my studies like academically but also just my social life and my relationships
1: well and i feel that, like this is jumping ahead a little bit but we kind of get that window into what it must have been like with your high school students um throughout some of this book in your relationship with i guess it's your nephew right uh who well, is my little cousin he's my little first cousin, cousin okay again, so, yeah yeah, so your cousin, who is like seven or eight,
0: and uh, and the internet is, is all he knows. Yeah, and when you talk to him about the internet, and even today now, he's a, a couple years older, but he still has a very difficult time differentiating what is the internet and what's not the internet. And so I think a lot of young people, and even people our age and demographic, we don't necessarily keep track of what's online, what's offline. Like even a radio interview, of course, it used to be something that would have been offline, but, as I've had a lot of radio interviewers tell me, now all of the all of the connections to the internet are essential for this being broadcast and not only on the radio, but it's also broadcast online through podcasts. And it would be pretty impossible to do radio interviews today without the internet.
1: Yeah. well, and I think about the ground rules you set for this uh, for this experiment. And I mean, it was basically one ground rule, right? you You weren't going to use you you didn't use anything connected to the internet.
0: Yeah, and the other ground rule was I couldn't ask people to do things online for me. So I was very tempted for little things like finding out the weather. I was always like, Oh, I wonder if I need to bring an umbrella out with me today. But luckily my partner and my friends were very, uh, they played along with my rules and they would say, Nope, not gonna (laughs) fall for that one. And so I really had to. Figure out alternatives to, to doing a lot of the really casual everyday things we don't even realize or think about are using internet power.
1: Well, right, we think we think about this phrase the the Internet of Things, mm-hmm. and as it plays out in your journal and and it dawns on the reader, how much is actually connected besides the things that are obviously obviously connected like Google and Netflix and email and whatever. There are, there are lots of things like as the as the year progresses, all the menus at restaurants you were trying to go to. Yep were QR code based.
0: Yeah. And often I actually would leave a restaurant when I would ask them for the paper menu and surprisingly maybe because of COVID or maybe because of other reasons, lots of restaurants were like, no, we actually don't have a paper menu anymore. And because of the rule where I couldn't ask people to do things online for me, I couldn't get my friends to order. So I would just leave the restaurant. And I think that, um, when you brought up the internet of things, I think there's a a weird phenomenon today where we assume that everything needs the internet to function, like the smart TV, the smart printer. And I, uh, while I was offline, I bought a printer, and it actually said on the box that it needed the internet to function, that it needed Wi-Fi. And so I asked one of the technicians at the shop, and this was, I think, in either December 2019 or January 2020. I said, "It says you need Wi-Fi to set it up," and the the person was like, "Oh no, no, that's just if you want to register it. You can use it, like plug it into your computer." <laughs> and I was like, "But it says on the box that Wi-Fi required." And so I think there's. Um, partially maybe so that these big tech companies can have as much of our data available to them for marketing purposes. But also, I think there's just this sense that like, oh, yeah, the internet's normal now. And that normalizing of the internet for everyday things, I think on the one hand, it makes it so important that we ensure that people have equitable access to the internet. But I also think it means we have to start thinking about what are the repercussions, both for our own mental health and for like the environment, but also for the exploitative labor that is involved in a lot of the tech processes we take for granted.
1: And I guess one of the other things that comes across is is not just like the, the casual nature of what's connected to the internet, but the casual nature of time we spend on the internet, mm-hmm. the time we're lying in bed or, or on a bus or, or even in the bathroom.
0: Yeah. A lot of my friends, when I ask them, do they have downtime? They ask me like, what do you mean by downtime? Like time I'm scrolling on my phone? I'm like, no, no, explicitly <laughs> not that. Like time when you aren't adding any more inputs to your brain where you're not like reading something or listening to something time when you're actually just sitting with your own thoughts and letting them like process or unfold in the ways that they might. And most people I know have none of that kind of downtime They're If they're not on their phone, then they're socializing. If they're not doing one of those two things, they're probably working. And the fact that it's almost like a compulsive thing for most people, like I've chatted with people who say it's muscle memory. They don't plan to take out their phone and start scrolling on Instagram or TikTok or Reddit. But rather, it's just something that happens to them when they're sitting and they're not doing something else. And I, I feel like without that kind of time, we must, there must be some repercussions for how we, for our mental health, but also for how effective we are and how respectful we are when we socialize and engage with work or with academia. You read a lot about
1: your friendships and, and in fact, some of the tenuous nature of those friendships. Uh, do you think not having internet made your personal relationships any more rewarding?
0: So it really difficult question, it's pretty hard to maintain a lot of friendships and relationships without the internet. That being said, while I was offline, I was using my phone, I was, um, I was doing a lot of letter writing, and I was able to keep connected to the people I cared about. But a lot of the relationships that weren't those really primary ones that I was making that active effort, they did fall away or were harder to maintain. There's a lot of uh, casual kind of friendship things. like liking somebody's post or sharing some news feed article or something those types of uh, casual ways that we connect and that nowadays are are pretty common were pretty impossible to me during the offline year so i think on the one hand it was actually harder to do a lot of the things that people were doing especially with covid and with like the zoom trivia nights everyone had but the types of friendships and relationships that i was nurturing i think were stronger for it uh, one little anecdote about that is um, even though there was lockdown and we weren't really able to socialize, when there was brief periods where we had, uh, we were where we were allowed to invite a couple other people into our bubble, I played a lot of Scrabble that year. <laughs> and uh, when I had friends over to play Scrabble, I realized that nobody was taking their phone up. And I brought it up at one point with I think my partner was there and one other friend, and I was like, Why aren't, why aren't you guys using your phones today? And they were like, Oh, I, th- I thought it'd be rude to you. And so there was this weird like I didn't ever say to them, Please don't use your phones around me. But because i was doing this experiment people were sort of trying to play along in in small ways and i found that in that space where we were playing scrabble we had dictionaries out to look up words when we challenged one another it did really feel like we were connecting in this way that was slower that felt very much like we weren't waiting for the thing that was going to happen next we were just there together and i know for myself with my smartphone or sorry not my smartphone but with my cell phone um, I still don't have a smartphone, uh, but even just with a, a flip phone, I find I'm often when I'm socializing, if I get a text message or I know something else is happening later in the day, my mind goes there and it's thinking about everything that I might be doing next. And I think without that possibility, like when when you have those boundaries and aren't engaging digitally in that way, you're able to be present for one another in a way that I think for most of human civilization <laughs> was probably quite normal. But now we're uh, we're a different species. We've sort of become this species on the go always on guard not knowing what's coming down the drain at a moment's notice
1: well and and when you're playing scrabble and and people are consciously keeping their phones in their pockets or their bags or or their cars or wherever you must have felt a little like the 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 guy who's just quit smoking or quit drinking (laughs) and people are consciously not smoking or drinking around him
0: yeah i mean there is this funny thing about tech that we don't think of it as a bad habit like i think maybe there's more um awareness now about not overusing tech but no one would ever be like, oh, having your phone is a unhealthy thing in the same way that having a cigarette is. And yet now I think when I was offline, I started to realize that like, of course, there's some really intentional, beautiful ways that people are using their their devices. But a majority of the screen time that most of my friends and family have aren't those beautiful, intentional things. They're just these compulsive things. And they contribute, I think, to a lot of the anxiety and a lot of the misinformation that we are realizing is causing a lot of issues today, politically, environmentally, and socially.
1: I guess I'm not 100% sure how to ask this question, but I don't want to tiptoe around it either. So maybe I'll just ask it this way. How central do you think your queer identity was to shaping that year?
0: That's a really cool question and one that I've never been asked. I think that one of the things as a young queer person I realized is that a lot of the expectations the society had for me just weren't going to fit. Like the idea of me marrying a woman wasn't going to (laughs) happen. So when you start questioning some of the really foundational expectations that your family and community and society have for you, you're able to actually start questioning other ones too. And I find um, I have Israeli family and I'm a very big advocate for Palestinian uh, solidarity work. And so when I have traveled to Palestine to volunteer and work with Palestinian organizations, I'm always surprised how many queer people, how many queer Jewish people are there. And so I think that was one of the first times when I was traveling in the West Bank where I realized, oh, being queer isn't just about your sexual orientation or your gender identity. It also translates to all sorts of other political and ideological ways that we interact with the world. So when I uh, think about being offline, I think that is a pretty queer move to be like, hey, everyone else I know or almost everyone else I know is diving deep into the Internet as COVID-19 lockdowns hit everybody. And I was like, hmm, I guess I don't need to fulfill that expectation because I had already had maybe practice at rejecting some social expectations. So I I love that question, Mitch. Like, I think being queer probably made me more open to doing something weird and queer like like spending a year offline.
1: Well, the other interesting thing is you just mentioned COVID there. And I, I, I didn't go through the book with a fine tooth comb, but I don't remember you ever kind of coming right out and talking about COVID itself.
0: That's a that's a very acute observation of you. I um, I actually made a point of not mentioning COVID in the book. Of course, COVID is a huge part of the book because all of the digital changes that were happening in 2020 wouldn't have happened in the same way without it. But I realized as I was putting together the book from all my journal entries that we all experienced COVID. We all know that story and we were all a part of it in a way that was pretty intense and, and for some people definitely traumatizing. And I didn't want my book to be uh, an upsetting read. I want it to be, a, as, as you open the conversation, I want it to be a bit more of a thought-provoking read. So I decided to leave out the explicit mention of COVID. And of course, it was there under the surface. But I think that the uh, importance of how our digital lives have been changing is something beyond COVID. COVID definitely exacerbated things and sped things along. It made it so that we embraced tech and digital options without really thinking about, oh, is this something we want to embrace? Because at the time, we had to embrace it. But now that we're back at a place where COVID isn't the thing driving tech innovations, I think we now have to go back a little bit and think like, hey, what were the changes that happened that we really did need and want to continue with? And what were the ones that we might want to move, I uh, think, rethink, like the one you brought up earlier about the QR codes and menus in Montreal, where I live, a lot of menus or a lot of restaurants still use QR code menus. And when you go to a nice dinner with your family or friends and everyone starts the, uh, the dinner with their phone in their hand, like trying to zoom in at the menu item, <laughs> it changes the feel. And I, I know that for me growing up, we were a very like no phone calls at the table, dinner people. Like if the phone rang, we would let it ring at dinner. And I think that that's really changed with both QR codes, but also like the smart watches that a lot of people have. Like we've started to normalize a lot of, um, ways that digital, uh, practices are creeping into our everyday lives. And some of those are really good and others I think we need to push back on. 2020
1: was, of course, a pretty breathtaking year to be offline. Um, If you had known what was coming that year, would you have still taken on this project?
0: No, I don't think so. I think that if I had known that we were going to be facing such a tragic and globally, like, uh, shape-shifting phenomenon, I think I would have probably delayed and tried to think about how I could maybe gear my research towards the changes that were happening during COVID. I don't wanna sound um, so privileged, but I'm glad that I was offline for that year because it did allow me to have a bit of an insulation from the types of doom scrolling and misinformation and conspiracy theories that were really rampant online that year. So I think personally, in a bit of a selfish way, it was actually sort of nice (laughs) being offline for 2020. I think there yeah. are a lot of us that kind of wish they were offline for parts of 2020. Yeah, I definitely had a lot of friends who were overwhelmed and I think how much they were overwhelmed was directly related to how much media they were consuming. And I was only able to get my media mostly from the radio and a few channels that I'm able to pick up here in Montreal, a few TV channels. But um, but yeah, I think, that, I think that if I had known what was coming, I would have tried to gear my focus and my research towards something more aligned with that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Your nightmares throughout the year, um, at least the ones you wrote about, uh, they all seem to be about
0: accidentally going online. Yeah. So, a lot of people ask me, like, did you ever almost go online or like accidentally use the internet or like really want to go online? And it wasn't like that at all. I didn't have any like inclination to go online. It was actually really nice to have that really firm rule for myself. And yet, my brain or my subconscious seemed like it really was worried (laughs) about that. And throughout the year, I had lots of these nightmares where I'd wake up in a cold sweat thinking I had just checked my email and then look around me and realize I was in bed and I had dreamt it. But I'm um, someone who doesn't, doesn't really give dreams too much of a, like, I'm not like, okay, my dream is some sort of magical representation of X, Y, Z, but I do think it's our brain trying to work through something. And so I'm so, sort of curious. And if any of your listeners are a uh, psychoanalyst and can, can read my book and tell me about my dreams, I'm curious what, why was I constantly dreaming about this horrible experience of going online, especially when it wasn't something I was worried about in my waking life.
1: Well, and, and, and in contrast, I think a lot of us were having nightmares about COVID or about all the, all the many other, you know, uh, potential doom fantasies we were having uh, that year. And so that, that was, you know, one of your apparent, you know, central subconscious concerns is maybe a little refreshing.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's funny how pedestrian or how like like low stakes that is just going online for most people is like, yeah, that's what I do every day. So it is interesting that that became like the be all and end all of horror for me in a year that was actually really a horrific year in more, more real ways.
1: So I want to ask about the end of the year and maybe start with a personal comparison here. Um, about 25 years ago, um, I was actually living here in Northern New York uh, when the region had its huge ice storm. Right. Right. Um, and here, uh, actually, in this you know very station where I'm talking to you from, we were without power for eight days, and there were people oh. in the region who were you know three weeks without power. Um, and I remember the moment, you know, we had generators here, so there were some some little incandescent lights we had, and we were operating the station. But there's a moment at which the fluorescent lights came back on. You know, they they flickered for a couple seconds and then suddenly everything was bathed in the usual light that it had been in, you know, for years before that. And it was a bit of a letdown. And, and at the same time, you know, there was this little part of me that was swearing that the stuff I had and, and that we had all gained from surviving those days would stay with me. And and they did for maybe three days. <laughs> okay. What was the reacclimation process like for you? And how much of that year do you think is still shaping the way you approach technology today?
0: That's a really cool question, and I think the comparison with the ice storm is is very apt because, yeah, this this feeling of not having what you need is very um, can be very frustrating. But then when you get used to it and acclimatized to it, then when it comes back and you're back to your old normal approach to life, it can be a bit disappointing in a way that is uh, a bit surprising. Because, I mean, this idea of not having the internet, just logically, it's like, well, that would be worse than having the internet, right? <laughs> but when you get so used to the type of life pace and the kind of interactions I was having and the way that I was able to read books in like very slow kind of minute detail... It, when that was over and I realized I had to re-engage in my studies in a much more fast-paced way, I had to commit to a lot more of co- collaborative kind of work that I was not putting off, but that I was doing in a slower pace while I was offline, it was quite stressful. And I remember that moment where I first opened up my emails and saw over, I think it was like over 2,800 unread messages. It was a horrible feeling. And I actually, it was probably a little bit cheeky, but I just immediately closed my browser and went for a walk. And while I was on that walk, I remember my mom called and we had chatted on the phone like every, you know, two or three days throughout the year as we normally do. But as soon as I was back online, she says, so when are you ready to do a FaceTime? And I was like, um, can we hold that? Like we do that like maybe in a couple of days or in a week. And she was like, oh no, I just really want to see your face. Like it's, you know, it's just really nice. And I know we chat all the time. Like, we're chatting right now, but it would just be different to see your face. And I didn't realize how stressful that would make me feel or how stressed out it would make me feel. And if my mom's listening, mom, you know, I love you and I'm happy for you to see my face, whatever we can make (laughs) it happen. But there is something about that uh, expectation to be connected in this more intense way that makes it feel like, I don't know, a little bit claustrophobic or a little bit like, I don't know how I'm going to keep this up and do everything else I need to do with my life. Because I I was still a busy person while I was offline. But when the internet allows us to do so much more, it feels like we have to do that much Mm -hmm. more in order to keep up with the people around us. So I think uh, right away, as you pointed out, the first few days, I really pushed back and allowed myself to take some time to reacclimatize without it being too overwhelming. But pretty quickly, as I got back online, I started realizing that I didn't have the self-control I needed in order to avoid doom scrolling or just spending too much time responding to emails or scrolling on social media. And one of the things that came out of this year offline is the realization that spending a year offline, it's actually sort of easy compared to just having regular day-to-day self-control, regular day-to-day strategies to practice moderation. And that practice, it does take practice, like the idea of being moderate and trying to use your cell phone or your laptop in a way that feels good, that's not going to come naturally. There's a lot of money being put towards us overusing our devices, like the marketing or the psychological programming that compels us to use our devices. That's a pretty powerful force. And if we want to be able to push back on that, we need to practice it in small ways on a regular basis. So as you'll find in the end of the book, I had a pretty rough January, 2021. I realized pretty quickly that I didn't have any more of that self-control, that I'd lost it all by spending a year offline. So on the one hand, the year offline did not hold up in the way I was hoping. It didn't, it didn't gird me for those types of, uh, temptations. But on the other hand, I still did have a lot of the realizations or awarenesses that I had gathered during that year. So I was able, after about a month of really falling into that pattern of spending way too much time online, I was able to remind myself of why I had done the experiment in the first place. And that piece of be, about being more intentional and using our devices in responsible ways that we feel good about and that don't necessarily have all the negative impacts for our world, that became something that I focused on in a much more explicit way in order to force myself to start practicing more of those self-control pieces. But I still don't have a smartphone, as I mentioned. And I think with the inclinations or with the, like the temptations to use devices, it's sometimes easier to make more of those like very bold sort of drastic changes. So not having a smartphone sets up a pretty firm boundary.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the, the thing about social media is not you know the 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 argument it makes is not that you can be in touch with everyone it's that you should be in touch with everyone right. all the time and, and reminding you feel you us have to be. right right and maybe reminding us that that it really is can and not should um, right. but yeah putting that into practice is, is another is another story entirely
0: yeah trying to find that balance it's not the easiest but it's so important
1: yeah yeah well um Aaron Lee Rosenberg, I'm just glad that you're back online so that we could have this conversation.
0: Well, I really appreciate you inviting me on the show, and it's been really a great time talking to you. Your questions were a lot more uh, sophisticated than a lot of the other ones I've (laughs) been getting, and it was a lot of fun to think through them.
1: Aaron Lee Rosenberg's new book is called Jacking Out, a Journal of a Year Spent Offline. He joined us online from Montreal. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Northwards. I'm Mitch Tyke. I hope you enjoyed our interview, and you can catch new content every Friday right here or wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about Northwards and NCPR on our mobile app or at our website, ncpr.org. And while you're there, make a donation to support everything you hear on North Country Public Radio. North Words is an NCPR podcast production. The show is written, edited, and produced by Mitch Tyke with digital production supervision by me, Ethan Shanty. Caitlin Kelly handles our social media. Bill Hanel is our digital director, and Doyle Dean is our production manager. Music is by the Wickmore Jazz Trio of Plattsburgh. To support this show and find more podcasts, visit ncpr.org. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio.